It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by Flint composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Here's your host. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the show. I'm Tom Sumner. My guest uh, this hour, we're going to get right to it, um, has written a book that Publishers Weekly said um, is an excellent account of the life of Drew Bundini Brown, who was born in 1928, died in 1987, and who, within the fabled Muhammad Ali entourage, was the champ's master motivator and corner man. The book is called Bundini, Don't Believe the Hype, by Todd Snyder, and Todd joins me by phone. Todd, welcome to the show. Thank you, Tom. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Um... You know, I, I I can't help asking about the title of the book. Um, on the cover of the book, it says Bundini, and then Don't Believe the Hype. But there's a red line through Don't. Is it Believe the Hype or Don't Believe the Hype? <laughs> well, we made that ambiguous on, per- on purpose because we wanted the reader to decide whether or not to believe the hype. Uh, one of the many labels that is bestowed upon Drew Bundini Brown is Hype Man. That is a term that comes out of hip-hop culture. And in hip-hop, a hype man is someone who joins the headlining artist on stage, and they sort of motivate the artist and keep the energy up in regard to the crowd. And over the years, the term Boondini has become synonymous with hype man for a different generation of hip-hop fans and, and sports fans as well. So we wanted to sort of play around with the idea of, is Boondini really a hype man, or was he more, th- uh, more than that to Muhammad Ali? So we wanted to let the reader to decide whether or not they should believe the hype. So we, you know, we were trying to be ambiguous there with the cover. <laughs> uh, and and it's and it's kind of, it makes it kind of fun. Um, but let me ask you this: most people don't really notice the people in the corner. Why did okay. you? Well, I grew up the son of a boxing trainer. My father was a, a small-town boxing trainer in West Virginia, and. The, the lens that I've always viewed boxing is through training camps and trainers because my father was one of those guys. My father was one of those guys in the corner who maybe doesn't get noticed by the average sports fan. So my whole childhood was growing up in boxing gyms and being with my father in the gyms, he trained fighters and prepared them mentally and physically to go in the ring. 
And as a teenager, I boxed as well. And, and eventually when I went off to college, when I came home for the summers, I would work corners with my father and I would help him in the gym. So I was always sort of someone who, when I watch a big fight, I'm paying attention to what the trainers say in the corner. I'm someone who pays attention to, uh, you know, that side of the sport where maybe the casual fan doesn't even notice those folks. And Bundini definitely is one of those guys who's been in the shadows of boxing history. I mean, I think most Ali fans know who he is because he coined the famous phrase, float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. But they really don't know much about his life story. And I've always been fascinated by trainers and training camps and the psychological part of boxing. So I was drawn to Bundini right from the start. You know, my dad was a big Muhammad Ali fan. So I always paid attention to that kind of stuff because of my background, my childhood. <laughs> I was just going to say, Todd, everybody was a big Muhammad Ali fan. Um, well, of course. He's bigger than boxing. <laughs> that's that's true. Um, but let me ask you this. With, with that kind of an upbringing, how did you end up getting a B.A. and M.A. in English from Marshall University and a Ph.D. in rhetoric and composition from Ohio University? Seems like you would have gone into the family business. Well, you know, uh, as a young man, that was what I thought I would do. You know, I thought I would be, you know, working corners with my dad forever when I was a kid. But my dad was much like Boudini Brown. Boudini told his son, I don't want this for you. I don't want you carrying spit buckets. I don't want you going through this. You're going to be better than me. And that's what Boudini said to his son. Uh, and, you know, I, I was able to interview his son for the book. My father said the same thing to me. He did not want me to go into boxing. And he didn't let me box until I was in my uh, teenage years because he tried to shelter me from it. He knew if you do it long enough, you're going to get hurt. Uh, he always told me, you're going to be the first in this family to go to college. And I heard that my whole life. And my father didn't have maybe the cultural capital to give me the advice on how to fill out financial aid forms. He didn't have the advice on you know, what to pick in regard to a career path. But I knew that I had a, a father and a mother who wanted me to go to college. So, you know, despite, you know, I didn't come from the most privileged background, I did have parents who really wanted me to do better than they did in life. And I went off to college, and the only thing I was good at was writing. <laughs> so I said, <laughs> I'll be an English teacher. And I fell in love with college. And I just, once I got there, I really found myself. And really, the joke I tell my family is I never stopped going to college. I went four years for my BA, two years for my MA, five years for my PhD, and then I I got a job here in New York where I, I'm an English teacher at Siena College. So I've never stopped going to college ever since I was 18. It's, it's, <laughs> I've been on that rhythm. <laughs> I noticed you were, you're an associate professor of rhetoric and writing at Siena College. Okay. What, what is rhetoric? I, I mean, I know what rhetoric is, but I've never seen someone who was a professor of rhetoric. Yeah, we, when you look at the, the different disciplines within English studies, there are people who teach creative writing, there are people who teach poetry and literature, and then there are pe people who teach persuasive writing. Like in my ah. classes, you would read Aristotle and Plato, and you would learn, uh, I do speech classes, and I do special topics courses uh, on hip-hop culture as well. Another reason I was drawn to Bundini, he was the poet in Muhammad Ali's corner. So I teach persuasive writing classes, uh, persuasive speaking classes, but, you know, I had my Ph.D. in boxing long before I ever went to college. <laughs> now, he, he was also a member of Sugar Ray Robinson's entourage for seven years. Yeah. Um, was that, th that was before Muhammad Ali? That's correct. And, and really, to be honest, one of the reasons I really wanted to do this book 
is if you were to poll boxing fans and say, who are the two greatest fighters of all time? I think the majority of answers you would get from a certain generation would be Sugar Ray Robinson and Muhammad Ali. And Bundini was in the corner of both of those guys. He had the best seat in the house, maybe for the two greatest fighters in history. And I, you know, my initial research question was, how does someone get such a privileged <laughs> seat in boxing history to get to work with maybe the two greatest ever? And Bundini was sort of the link between the two. And he's an interesting guy even away from the ring. Um, oh, yeah. Raised in Jim Crow, Florida, um, and, and married a white Jewish woman in the 1950s. That's right. <laughs> Think about this guy. He, he grew up in a very poor environment in Sanford, Florida. And it was at a time where the Ku Klux Klan really loomed large in Seminole County. It was, it was not a safe place to, to sort of, you had to be very careful how you interacted in certain parts of town. And, and that's what I heard from a lot of the members of the Brown family. And when the Naval Air Station Sanford was founded in, I think, 1942, he signed up <laughs> for the Navy uh, when he was 13, pretending to be 18. And of course, at those times, uh, you know, there was a lot of racism in the Navy and black men were essentially stewards. You know, he cooked and shined shoes and did that kind of thing on, you know, in the Navy. But the Navy was his ticket out of those circumstances. He winds up in Harlem after his stint in the Navy and the Merchant Marines, and he marries Rhoda Palestine, this white Jewish woman from Brighton Beach, New York. And they have a relationship and a marriage uh, that is very taboo for the time. And, of course, they have a son, Drew Brown III, who you know was raised as a Jewish man. He's bicultural, biracial background. I, I was just as drawn to his family story, his personal story, as I was the boxing stuff. <laughs> he had a really interesting life. Well, yeah, he ended up, uh, um, he appeared in movies like Shaft. He, did. he was in the Shaft movies. He played Willie, this gangster from Harlem. <laughs> and uh, he did a really great job. Gene Kilroy, who was Muhammad Ali's business manager, had a job with MGM Studios. And... They were looking for someone to play a Harlem gangster in, in this new movie. And he said, hey, these actors are terrible. I'll show you the real thing. And he got Bundini to come in, do some lines, and he got the part. <laughs> he ended up doing six, six movies, you know, to think uh, from his very humble circumstances that he grew up in in Sanford, to be in six Hollywood movies and to be with those two great champions. What a life. Pretty pretty miraculous. And he thought of himself as, as a, uh, a street poet kind of um and, oh, and this is long before there was hip-hop or spoken yeah. word or, or anything like that but he he was already immersed in that yeah what's really uh, that's in some ways uh tom what drew me to him uh there isn't a reputable hip-hop history book that doesn't give ali credit for being the archetype for the persona that rappers would take when hip-hop is formed a couple of decades later. Ali would rhyme and talk about how great he was and how beautiful he was. Well, when hip-hop comes out in the early 1980s, that's what rappers are doing. And Ali shows up in a lot of those hip-hop lyrics, by the way. <laughs> Two or three of the first hip-hop songs ever made have Ali references in them. Well, I mean, if that's true, if Ali's sort of the beginning of hip-hop, where Bundini is as well, he he's the one who came up with a lot of those famous rhymes. And... He did think of himself as a poet and wrote poetry, and he loved that sort of, uh, you know, 
that jive talking, you know, snapping on people, dissing people with rhymes. That was Bundini's persona. He, when he joined Ali's team, that side of Muhammad Ali really came out. And and he, uh, you mentioned that he um, coined the phrase "float like a butterfly, sting like a bee." That was actually Bundini's, and That's and. Right. Uh, Ali is is famous for that line, but there were other lines too. It was he was really feeding the champ in, in that way, mm-hmm. and and he is uh, often re- referred to as his um, uh, motivator and corner man. That's right. Well, see, the thing about Bundini that's interesting. Well, a lot of things are interesting, but one of the things that really drew me in was. I knew he had spent some time in the Navy, so I assumed that he had learned to box in the Navy, or or the Navy was his connection to boxing, because where I'm from, that's usually the case. Not at all. He never boxed as an amateur. He never boxed as a professional. And really, it was just through these sort of wild set of circumstances that he found himself in the boxing world. He thought of himself as a motivator, a spirit coach, uh, a poet, much more than he thought of himself as a boxing strategist angelo dundee who was in muhammad ali's corner was the strategist came up with the game plan uh which often muhammad ali did not follow if you watch the rumble in the jungle and he you know the rope-a-dope was not angelo's idea (laughs) so you know (laughs) ali he liked to have people around him who made him feel good and brundini and you know those two guys they were just terrific friends uh they worked together for over 21 years in, in the corner uh, and 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 that's fascinating. Um, how did Bundini uh, or Bundini get into the world of boxing? I, I mean, I can't think of a of a street poet who just walks into a gym. I mean, is this one of those uh, you know a street poet walks into a bar kind of stories? Well, let me tell you, it, it's actually not a uh, boxing gym that he walks into. It, it is a barber shop he walks into. Uh, uh-huh. What happened was, uh, Bundini lived in Harlem, and Sugar Ray Robinson, midway through his career, retired. He thought he had accomplished all that he was ever going to accomplish, and he was going to be an entrepreneur. And Sugar Ray bought up an entire street block of real estate in Harlem, and he developed Sugar Ray Dry Cleaners, Sugar Ray Golden Gloves Barbershop, uh, a women's boutique. Uh, a bar and restaurant, a nightclub. So Sugar Ray owned pretty much a block of Harlem. Well, Bundini lived in a little apartment above the Golden Gloves barbershop. So one day he's in there getting a haircut, and he meets Johnny Honeyboy Bratton, who is the former welterweight champion of the world. Those two become really good friends, and he invites Bundini to the gym. And he goes to the gym with Bratton, and he sort of serves the role of motivator there to you know pick his spirits up, to be an odd jobs man, so, so to speak. Those two become great friends, and it is Bratton who eventually introduces uh, Bundini to Sugar Ray's entourage and his people. And he kind of works his way up the entourage. Hey, Todd, I, I, Todd I've got to put a comma here because I have to go to break, but also I'm getting a little sure. clicking noise uh, from your phone. So during the break, if you don't mind, I'm going to disconnect and call you back and okay. see if we have a better connection. Sounds perfect. We'll have more with Todd Snyder right after we let our broadcast partners squeeze a few words in edgewise. If you're streaming us, we have some messages Hello as well. Hello there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> 
I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. A social distancing tip. Putting distance between yourself and others is critical to slowing the spread of coronavirus. So here are ways to stay in contact without the physical contact part. Call, send a text, set up a video conference, post on social media, dedicate a song on the radio. If you have symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath, call your health care provider before going to their office. For more info, visit coronavirus.gov. Let's all do our part, because we're all hashtag alone together. Brought to you by the America, your children have an amazing superpower. They can help save lives by not having playdates. That's right. By replacing get-togethers with virtual playdates and video chats, they can help slow the evil spread of germs. And if your superheroes do go outside, make sure they continue their superhero wing by staying six feet away from others to protect everyone in America land. Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. East Village Magazine is the monthly neighborhood magazine read all over Flint. With support from grants, donations, and advertisers, East Village Magazine's talented local writers give you an in-depth look at local news, issues, and people that make Flint, Flint. Copies of East Village Magazine are available at many of your favorite shops and restaurants around Flint or online at eastvillagemagazine.org. East Village Magazine, community-focused and community-supported. Your calls matter. Join me and Andrea weekdays from 9 to 10 a.m. Eastern to talk about whatever you want to talk about. The Tom Sumner Program has open phone lines Monday through Friday to hear from you. How's 2020 working out for you so far? How about those damn roads? Call in live at 810-339-8255. It's all about you. We'll be streaming live at TomSumnerProgram.com and simulcast on WFOV 92.1 FM in Flint. Foil hats are optional. You thought you had every Elvis record made, but wait, Elvis sings again, this time from heaven. That's right, Elvis from heaven. Yes, hear Elvis from Graceland in the Sky, soul-stirring versions of epic proportions. You'll hear Elvis crooning, pearly gate rock, all dug up, lying in the chapel, and 11 others. This record also includes a special Elvis message. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Elvis Presley. Order before midnight tonight and receive this Elvis Presley commemorative casket keychain. Open it up. Yes, the king inside. A must for any Elvis fan. Order yours today. To order your Elvis from Heaven, send $9.95 in check or money order to Elvis from Heaven, P.O. Box 714, Cleo, Michigan, 44487. Or save COD charges and phone 555-5554. Use Master Charge or Visa, Canadian residents, add $3. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner Program is provided by Swiftlet Technology. Engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. Tom Sumner Program.com The Tom Sumner Program.com 
This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody. My guest this hour is uh, the author of a book called Boondini, Don't Believe the Hype, or Believe the Hype, It's Your Choice, by Todd Snyder. Todd, uh, welcome back. Thank you. Appreciate it. Um, now, uh, before we went to break, we were talking a little bit about how this uh, this guy, um, Drew Bundini Brown, um, got into to uh, boxing, how he... Uh, he lived in Harlem, and, and he ended up going to a gym, or a barber shop, actually. And then um, one thing led to another, and he ended up in a gym. And, and it was his, his personality um, and his ability to motivate people and, and make them feel good that, that got him sort of introduced one person after another and, and eventually becoming uh, a corner man for Sugar Ray Robinson and then later Muhammad Ali. Uh, but how did he get the name Bundini? <laughs> That's a great question. Um, when he was in the Navy, uh, his ship was docked at a port in India, and they were having uh, mechanical problems on the ship. It was something. It was a problem that had to do with the torpedo, and they had to stay a couple extra days at that port. Well, some of the naval stewards uh, were able to get out and explore a little bit, and Bundini and some of his friends were out on the port, and this group of young girls, who were probably teenagers, uh, had had called to him, uh, Bundini, Bundini, which is probably an incorrect translation, but that's how he <laughs> understood the term. And apparently it means lover or, or boyfriend or something like that. And uh, one of his commanding officers heard that, and they began to tease him. So he was Bundini Brown for the rest of his tour in the Navy. And the nickname just stuck. Uh, it had nothing to do with boxing. It was actually <laughs> when he was in the Navy. So he was Bundini Brown for the rest of his life. And Muhammad Ali pronounced it Bodini. You know, that was Ali had that Louisville accent. So he called yeah. it Bodini. <laughs> <laughs> well, Bodine would have been a common name down there. Yeah, maybe. Uh, it's funny because... Uh, Drew, Drew Brown III, Bundini's son, said to me, one way to tell if someone knew my father is how they pronounce his name. If they say Bodini, I, knew, I know that they really met my dad. If they say Bundini, uh, that's someone who's you know, heard the name said on TV or in movies. I, I can't trick myself into saying Bodini. It's so hard to do. You know? so, <laughs> I guess I'm a member of the entourage now. <laughs> um. Tell me a little bit more about uh, Bundini's son. You, you mentioned there was a similarity in that, um, you know, both of you had fathers who uh, worked in, in boxing and encouraged you not to. Um, what what ended up happening with, uh, with Drew Brown III? Yeah, well, um, I think a couple of years into their marriage, I think they were married for five years, uh, Bundini and his wife wrote up, did actually have a divorce, uh, but he remained a part of Rhoda's life, and he was also a part of Drew Brown III's life as well. And, you know, Drew eventually uh, graduates high school and goes off to college uh, and is a college basketball player in New Orleans. And from that, he goes into the Navy a couple years later after college, and he becomes a fighter pilot. <laughs> And, you know, he sort of realized his father's dream uh, of being a pilot in the Navy. And then after that, he goes on to be a commercial uh, pilot for FedEx, a motivational speaker. He wrote his own book in the late 1980s. 
Uh, and he's a very successful man. His kids have gone on to do amazing things as well. So I did want to tell the sort of the family lineage uh, that comes from Bundini. I wanted to talk about his marriage. I want to talk about his son. I wanted to talk about his grandkids because I wanted readers to see him as a man, not just this Bundini persona that we see in those Muhammad Ali press conferences. What about his own father? Yeah, Bundini had a rough relationship with his father. Uh, his own father, Drew Brown uh, Sr., was a tough guy. Uh, he grew up, like I said, in some pretty tough circumstances in Sanford, and his father worked the railroads. His father uh, was an alligator hunter who would sell alligator hides for, to, to feed the family. He uh, was a drinker, and he was in some ways abusive uh, to his wife and to uh, Bundini when he was a child. So Bundini kind of grew up wanting to get away from home. He, he grew up wanting to get away from Sanford. He, he did have a pretty tragic, rough childhood. And I think some of those tragic moments in his childhood haunted him into his adult life as well. And yet he named his son Drew the Third. Yeah. Yeah, and it's interesting because his grandson is Drew Brown the Fourth. And uh, Drew Brown the Fourth is now a spine surgeon. He lives in Tampa, Florida. And uh, it, is, it is so interesting to see how successful Bundini's son and grandson have, have gone on to be. So there are a lot of Drews in that family. That was one of the tricks in writing this book, is separating Bundini <laughs> from the other Drews. <laughs> Drew one through four. Right. Um, what was the biggest surprise for you researching this, uh, this book? Well, there's this impulse, even for people like myself who love Bundini, to think of him as sort of a court jester, this guy who was there to make it fun, because he did have this wonderful personality, and he was hilarious, and he was clever with the rhymes and the words. So I knew that part of him was going to be there. What I didn't realize is how spiritual he was. He was a man who his favorite subject was to talk about God and spirituality. And he, you know, even though he had married a Jewish woman and raised his son as a Jewish man, his son had a bar mitzvah and all that stuff. Um, Bundini loved religion. He loved religious services. He would take his son to Catholic churches. He would take his son to mosques. He loved to worship God and talk about God. So even though he and Ali had very different sort of religious backgrounds, they both were very spiritual men and were motivated by the idea of God and a God who is omnipresent in their life. Uh, that's not a Bundini I didn't know was there until I did the research and met his family. Earlier we were talking about how he uh, got to meet uh, Sugar Ray Robinson and become part of that entourage. But how did he move then to Muhammad Ali? Well, he's with Sugar Ray for the second half of Sugar Ray's career. Um, I think they spent like 38 fights together. Uh, it, it's the end of Sugar Ray's career. He's sort of about ready to retire. And this young kid from Louisville, Kentucky, wins the gold medal and is sort of making noise in boxing. His name is Cassius Clay. And Cassius Clay has his first big bout at Madison Square Garden in 1964 against a guy named Doug Jones. And because New York City was robinson's town he's at the fight and it was at the weigh-in to that fight that he, he said ali i got well he's cassius clay at that point uh cassius i got a guy you got to meet he's the only person i've ever met who can out talk you uh and of course <laughs> ali would do the rhymes and all that stuff too so it was actually sugar ray who linked them up they they met each other became fast friends 
And eventually, you know, it's Muhammad Ali's idea to bring him to his own training camp after Sugar Ray's sort of out of the game. Did uh, Boondini and Ali remain tight throughout uh, Boondini's life? They did, but one of the, the, the journeys that the readers go on in this book is they did have some falling out over the years there were there were they had some fights and they had some tiffs and he would fire Boondini and then he would bring him back and then he would fire him and bring him back <laughs> uh depending on who you ask Boondini may have been fired eight to twelve times you know everyone had a different number for me but what I was able to pick up on was that he was fired often but Ali would always bring him back before the next fight uh so they were kind of like big brother little brother in some ways uh they had their tiffs and arguments but they were with each other to the very end. They they were dear friends, even away from boxing and during Muhammad Ali's exile. Why is it important to get to know the people behind greats like Sugar Ray Robinson and Muhammad Ali? Well, I think in this case, if you want to know more about Muhammad Ali, one way to do that is to understand what motivated him. And really, Drew was a master motivator. He understood what made Ali tick. He understood not just what would motivate anybody, but what would motivate him specifically. So to study the sort of philosophies and teachings and phrases that Bundini used to get Ali to sort of bring the best out in himself, well, you get to know the champ a little, a little bit different as well. I mean, it's like meeting someone's spouse or meeting their best friend. You start to see you know, the reasons they were attracted to each other, the reasons they liked each other. They had very similar uh, sense of humor and a very similar imagination. So to get to know Boondini does let you see Ali in a new light, a new perspective, perhaps. When you made the decision to write this book, um, where did you start? Yeah, that's a great question, Tom. Uh, What I started with was I made a timeline of his life from the day he was born to the day he died. And I I read every Ali book and Sugar Ray Robinson book and went back to the archives of Sports Illustrated and uh, Ring Magazine just to see what had been written about him and to see what I could chart on that timeline. Then I, of course, reached out to his son and was able to sort of become friends with the, the Brown family. And that was able to give me a more human perspective and to fill in those gaps on my timeline a little bit. From there, I started to talk to the boxing folks who knew Ali best. I talked to George Foreman, Larry Holmes, a lot of Ali's sparring partners who worked with him in the gym, people who Ali faced and had to go up against Boondini in those pre-fight press conferences. <laughs> and I was able to really get a full picture. And my, my timeline by the time I was ready to write this thing was pretty full. <laughs> and, and were you able to um, talk to Hollywood people about some of his... Uh, his screen appearances as well? Well, you know, I, I wasn't able to talk to Richard Roundtree, who played the character Shaft, and then we tried every way we could. We, we never did quite get to him. My connections in the boxing world are much more uh, solidified than in Hollywood. <laughs> but I was able to get a, a different side of Boondini through his son in regard to those movies. His dad quit school when he was in the second grade, so he wasn't a great reader. So his son, who was in high school at the time, would memorize the lines, and they would practice in the kitchen. So his son, still to this day, can recite all of his dad's lines <laughs> and chat. Isn't that crazy? That, that <laughs> well, is. I did get a, yeah, I got a behind-the-scenes picture of how Bundini readied himself for that performance. <laughs> oh, that's, that's, um, 
that's both funny and and really interesting too and probably sure. created a, a, a very um a very special bond between drew yeah. the second and drew the third it did and uh he, he did bring his son to all the fights when he got older uh he was a little boy when ali won the title i think he was eight or nine years old maybe 10 when ali beat liston but as you know ali had a very long career and as he got older his dad brought him to all the fights he was in the locker room uh, for Ali Frazier at Madison Square Garden. So he was there and had a really unique perspective uh, as to what his dad gave Ali and what his dad did for Ali. So, you know, he was a lucky man. He got to be at all the big fights. Uh, the only one he missed was the Rumble in the Jungle in Zaire, and that was because he was in college. He was a basketball player in college. He couldn't leave the team to go to Zaire to watch that fight in Africa. But he was at all the other big fights. And and did he get to know? Did Drew the Third get to know Ali? And and did he have any kind of relationship with him after his father died? Oh, absolutely. Uh, I have I got I got access to all of his artifacts, and Ali would write him postcards and letters. And he called him. Uh, they called him Buddy Drew, is what they called Budini's uh. son, Buddy Drew. And I, I have all kinds of letters that Ali wrote to Buddy Drew. They were pen pals. No, I got to see a side of Ali through those writings as well. And Ali was, in some ways, like a big brother to him. And he called Sugar Ray Robinson Uncle Ray. So he had some pretty cool family members uh, being Bundini's son. <laughs> I, I, I guess so. Um, yeah, right. How did, uh, how did Bundini, I mean, we've talked a lot about how other people viewed him, but how did he view himself? Yeah. You know, the thing about Bundini is he was absolutely a selfless person, maybe to a fault. He he never signed a contract with Muhammad Ali. He was paid after the fight, and he would tell the champ, you pay me what you think I'm worth. And Ali would sometimes pay him different <laughs> different salaries for each fight. Uh, he, he was someone who was just a traveler, a dreamer. He kind of floated through life. He was, He had this nomadic kind of energy where he sort of went through life never knowing what was going to happen the next day. He wasn't someone who saved his money for retirement. He wasn't someone <laughs> who had a business strategy. He could have obviously capitalized off his fame much more than he did. Uh, but he was someone who really sort of led by the spirit of the day. He was a free spirit in a way that I could, I could never be. Uh, so <laughs> he, he thought of himself as a world traveler. He thought of himself as someone who, uh, you know, maybe didn't get a lot of advantages in life, but one, when one did come his way, he would always maximize it. Was he, was he able to put together money to, to help Drew III get through school and support <laughs> him in college? One of the fun stories in the book is Muhammad Ali paid for uh, his <laughs> freshman year of college. Uh, it wasn't it wasn't Bundini who paid for it. It was the champ. Uh, you, you know, Bundini was not good with money, and his son was very open and honest about that. And he said one of the reasons that he has been so successful in business is that he watched his father struggle so much, and he he grew up knowing I don't want to be like my dad. I don't want to have to live paycheck to paycheck. Uh, his son is doing very well for himself, and he's someone who is very conscious with his finances. Uh, Bundini was not. He, he would get paid, and he would give money away to friends, and he would loan money to people. And he tried to start a, a bar in Manhattan called Bundini's World, which was successful at first, but eventually the problem was Bundini was his own best customer. Uh -huh. <laughs> and uh, the business eventually did go under. So 
he wasn't a man who was, you know, he wasn't highly educated, to be honest. He, he was not great with finances, but he always hustled and made it happen. He always found a way to keep himself afloat. Um, and that raises the question, I thought I read somewhere that, that, um, that when he was uh, first living in New York, in Harlem, that, um, that he was pretty well known in, in the jazz clubs. Was he kind he of was. a carouser? Well, it's a funny way of thinking about him. Uh, some of the folks who I interviewed for the book told me they knew Bundini first from Birdland and some of the jazz clubs in New York City. Uh, he had a romantic relationship with Ruth Brown, uh, who's no, no relation, who was an R&B star at the time. So he met a lot of people through Ruth Brown. He met a lot of jazz stars through Sugar Ray Robinson. And his nickname was the Black Prince. They called him the Black, Black Prince of Harlem. And he had a lot of famous friends, James Baldwin, Miles Davis. He knew a lot of the cool <laughs> New York City jazz scene, intellectual kind of folks. And he did run with some good circles, uh, even prior to Muhammad Ali. He was sort of known in that jazz scene. Uh, the way I think of him, is he was a hustler, but in the positive sense of the term. He, he turned lemons into lemonade. And w when something came his way, he maximized those opportunities. So he hung with some pretty successful people prior to being a part of the most famous entourage in boxing history. And, and did he have dalliances or romantic relationships during uh, any of that time? <laughs> well, he, he was a ladies' man, let's say it that way. And <laughs> as, as a husband, uh, he wasn't always the most faithful husband, and, you know, he and his wife Rhoda had sort of what we today would call sort of an open relationship. He had lots of women in his life, lots of girlfriends. Uh, his son, I think, referred to it as a revolving door of girlfriends throughout his life and his dad's life. And, of course, when his dad becomes famous and is in the movies, uh, finding, finding women who were interested in him wasn't that difficult. So he, he was a guy who was a ladies' man, if you want to use that term. He, uh, uh, you know, he was only married once you know, to Rhoda Palestine and had, had his son. But he definitely got around. We'll say it that way. <laughs> Faithful to his family, but not necessarily his marriage. Well, what was interesting, though, is after the divorce, uh, maybe it's because of my own background, I assumed that he cut off, you know, ties with Rhoda. But they became friends, uh, maybe even more so after the divorce. They were better as friends than they were as married, uh, a married couple. And they, she worked at Bundini's World, his, his nightclub. And they would write together. See, Bundini couldn't type. So when he was writing his poems, she would actually type them and help, help him with the poems. So they, they remained friends all the way to his death, even though he, they didn't work as a married couple. She would not back down from him, and he would not back down from her. They were just two hurricanes that maybe didn't need to be under one roof. That's it that way. <laughs> um. Who are you hoping, uh, I, well, obviously the question is everybody, but who are you hoping will read this book, and, and what are you, um, and, and who will get the most out of it? That's a great question. Uh, obviously, because of uh, Sugar Ray Robinson and Muhammad Ali, I anticipate that this book will be widely read in boxing circles. Um, you know, Ring Magazine and a lot of the big boxing websites have covered the book since it was published in late August. You know, it does tell stories that have never been told. It does tell stories that have been hidden in the shadows of Muhammad Ali's history. So it does do that. 
I also think this book is immensely important to hip-hop history as well, because it does show the rumblings that are occurring before hip-hop explodes in the nation's uh, cultural consciousness in the early 80s. Hip-hop wasn't born in a vacuum. There were several movements that were happening that led to hip-hop. Bundini Brown's life is one of those trajectories that brings us to the hip-hop generation. Uh, and I also think anyone interested in American history, I mean, Bundini lived through the Harlem Renaissance. He lived through the 60s and the Vietnam War and Muhammad Ali's issues with the Nation of Islam and Vietnam. And, of course, we see Bundini go into the 70s and early 80s. So it, it's an American history book, too. I do think of myself probably more of a historian than a, a journalist or even a boxing writer. So if people want to say this isn't a boxing book, I'm okay with that. It's a, it, it's a story of a, a man's life that is pretty extraordinary and reminds us of some really interesting times in our country's history. Now you've got this book about, uh, about Drew Bundini Brown and, and uh, a previous book, 12 Rounds in Lowe's Gym. You, you've got two boxing books under your belt. Um, what what's next, Todd? <laughs> uh, the the book that you referred to, Twelve Rounds in Lowe's Gym, is a memoir of uh, my childhood in Appalachia, growing up in my father's gym, uh, and sort of what it means to grow up in that environment. Where I'm headed next, and I guess this is the third part of my boxing trilogy. Is I'm working <laughs> on a book. I'm working on a book titled, titled Beatboxing: How Hip Hop Changed the Fight Game, and I'm interviewing hip hop icons and world champion boxers about the intersection between hip-hop and boxing. Uh, Bundini got me thinking in that way, and now I want to write the definitive history of hip-hop and boxing because those worlds overlap in some really interesting ways. So I, I'm, I've interviewed 25 hip-hop legends and 25 world champion boxers, and they're telling me their stories. And uh, it's a very exciting project. It should be out late 2021. Well, that's great. And then um, will you continue beyond that writing about boxing or will you turn to some other interest and and explore that well it's interesting uh, my first book was a, a book titled the rhetoric of appalachian identity and it was about appalachia and it was about west virginia and about what it means to grow up and be a first generation college student in that environment so my first book was sort of an academic book about the appalachian region very far removed from the work i'm doing now I guess I'm like Bundini in a way that I want to just be led by my passions and led by my spirit and uh, not think too far ahead. I just want to write the kind of books that I like to read. So well, will I write another boxing book? Who knows? But uh, I do think of Lowe's Gym, Bundini, and beatboxing as sort of a boxing trilogy for me. Um, Todd, we just have a minute left, but I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more about you, about the book, mm -hmm. about your projects, past, present, and future. Do you have a website? I do. Uh, I, I wrote a dissertation called The Hillbilly Speaks of Rhetoric. It was about Appalachia. So the name of my website is hillbillyspeaks.com. And uh, initially, that was a website about Appalachian stereotypes and trying to debunk those. But now it's sort of become my de facto author page where I list events and readings and books that are coming out. They can find me on that website, or I'm on Twitter and Instagram, so I'm easy, easy to find on there uh, under Todd Snyder. All right. Well, Todd, thanks so much for spending this time with me this morning. I really appreciate it. Well, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much. Take care. 
Todd Snyder, the uh, author of Boondini, Don't Believe the Hype. We're going to take a short break, but we got lots more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead, so don't touch that dial, don't click that mouse. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Hawaiians, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner program. Hi, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. If you like talk radio that makes you think without telling you what to think, check out our whole show weekdays from 9 a.m. to noon Eastern at TomSumnerProgram.com. Selected segments are also available on this and other radio stations, but you can hear us anytime. Daily editions of the Tom Sumner Program repeat online all day and night on the show's website. Past shows can be found in the website archives. My long-format interviews with New York Times best-selling author photographers and writers from National Geographic, as well as artists, musicians, candidates, and elected officials are made possible by listeners like you. Support the Tom Sumner Program and Civilized Talk Radio. Visit our website at TomSumnerProgram.com and become a member. You can make a one-time gift or become a sustaining patron by taking the link to the Tom Sumner Program Patreon page. Thanks for listening and thanks for your support. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air, where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses, and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. Thank you, and thank you all for tuning in. You know, we know that tough times don't last, but tough people do. We've been through a lot here in Michigan. We've been through crisis before, where the country needed their countrymen and countrywomen to pitch in collectively to get through a crisis and rise to the occasion. Michigan once was the arsenal of democracy to win World War II. We need that same spirit now. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals and first responders to stop the spread and to save lives. But we need your help too. The state has launched a new volunteer website at www.michigan.gov forward slash fight COVID-19 where trained medical professionals can register to serve their fellow Michiganders by assisting hospitals in fighting COVID-19. State residents can also use the site to find out how they can help in their local communities by giving blood or donating resources or needed medical supplies. Whether you're a medical professional looking to volunteer or you're someone who can give blood or donate to your local food bank, everyone can help out. To get through this, we must all do our part. Stay home, stay safe. And save lives. Technical assistance for the Tom Sumner program is provided by Swiftlet Technology, engineering and IT services at swiftlet.technology. I know 
place where you never get harmed. A magical place with magical charms. Indoors, indoors, indoors. Take it away. Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. Now, I want to uh, tell you this, this story. When, this is a game that we played when we were, when we were kids, and it's called... Buck Buck. We played it in Philadelphia. Buck Buck. Now, you people out here on the West Coast probably know nothing about it. Uh, in New York, it's called Johnny on the Pony and other things. It's where f- uh, five kids line up, you see, and they bend over. They're in a straight line. They bend over, and one kid grabs a fence or a wall or a pole, holds on to that. The next kid puts his right arm around his waist, you see, bends over, tucks his head under, and you got five guys lined up exactly like that. <laughs> So they all look like a long horse. Now, the object of the game is that one at a time, one by one, kids come running up and they say, Buck, buck, number one, come in! They run up, leap in the air, and they land on the horse. And they keep going, bam, 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 until they collapse the horse, you see. Now, that's the object of the game. Then you count how many kids you held and you go back and forth, you see. Now, we had the champion buck, buck team of the world. When I tell you we played Buck Buck, there was nobody that whipped us anywhere, man. And you can tell kids that play a lot of Buck Buck because they're built like this, you see. And their legs are only four inches long. That's all they have because they've been crushed so much. So we're around there practicing Buck Buck number five. Land on each other. Some kids come down from the rough part of town. And they're really tough, man. They got toothpicks on the side of their mouth. And the hat on sideways, and he got the pants on backwards, you know, just rebelling against everything, you know. And he said, Listen, we're here, you're supposed to be so tough, we challenge you to the Buck Buck Championship of the World. So he said, All right. So I line up, turkeys. So we line up, five of us. Whack. They start sending kids down. Buck Buck number one, come in. Feel pretty heavy, man. We check them out. Guys have rocks in their pockets to make them way heavier, you know. And buck buck number two. Now they get up to 300 and it's really heavy. Buck buck 300 come in. Now they're on top of us, piled all the way up to the sky, and they're rocking back and forth. Hold on, Harold. I can't do it no more. Guys, come on, hold on. Buck buck 400 coming. We collapse. All right, how many did you hold? We held 400 of your guys. Well, that was pretty good. But we usually hold around 600. Ah, ah, ah. All right, we line up. They line up. Send the first kid down, old weird Harold. All right, Harold. Buck, buck number one, come in. These guys are really cool. What was that? A mosquito? You guys don't have no weight. Come on, let's go. Buck, buck number two, come in. I landed. A piece of paper. Somebody threw a piece of paper on top of me. Buck, buck number three. That was nothing. Four. Five. We got the championship. All right, bring out your last man, you turkeys. Come on, bring him out. Come on out. Fat Albert. Fat Albert was the baddest buck buck breaker in the world. And he loved to hear us call his name. 
Fat Albert weighed 2,000 pounds. And he kicked the door to his house open. And you could hear him say, hey, hey. We built a little ramp for him to walk down so he could build up speed because he couldn't hardly run fast. And he was coming, hey, hey. And the ground's trembling. Trees falling over. Buildings losing pieces of brick. Parents taking kids off the street. Hey, 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 And these guys underneath said, what's the ground doing shaking, man? How come the ground shaking? So that's Fat Albert coming for you. Hey, hey, hey. And he turned the corner and he saw one leg. What is that? So that's Fat Albert. Hey, hey, hey. And they stood up. We give. He ain't falling on us. Now, I told you that story to tell you this one. Not now. Guys, guys in my neighborhood went to great lengths to scare anybody. Because it's a great thing when you scare somebody. They lose their cool completely. That's the only time when a human being is really himself. I mean, because if you scare somebody good, they just, the legs shoot out, the hair stands up, the eyes bug out, and they say, blah, blah. Yeah, see? And then you laugh. Ah, 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 that was really funny, man. You got so scared. Ah. So, guys found this statue. Stole it, really. A statue of Frankenstein, five feet, eight inches tall, in color of the monster. Frankenstein was... They take it home. There's only three of them. Take it home. They take it into an apartment building. Put it up on the third floor landing, you see. Now they take out all the lights in the hallway. Put in a pink one right by the monster statue. One kid gets behind it. They send another one out in the street. He calls a kid. They come running up. He passes the kid with the statue, taps him. Kid with the statue leans it. Kid that doesn't know anything about it turns around and kills himself running out of the building. You see, this is called fun. Of course, then you laugh at the guy. Boy, you were really scared, man. You fell 12 lights in there. That was really funny. So, I'm coming home from the store about 8.30. No, I always have my music with me. I always have to hum my music because monsters cannot attack you if you have your music with you. Hey, cops! What? Come on over, man. You should see it. Herman's getting the beating. Let's go watch it. Herman? Yeah, I love to see Herman getting the beating. Man, I jump, man. I and I'm chasing after this guy. I can't wait, man, to see Herman getting the beating because I don't like Herman anyway. And he goes up the second flight and says, wait for me, man. Wait for me. Don't go so fast. And he makes that turn around the third. And I make the turn. The guy takes a second. I never touched one step. Ran two miles before I realized what had happened. When I turned around, they were right behind me laughing. Ah, 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 gosh, you were really funny, man. Gosh, rolling, kicking the feet up in the air on the back. You were really funny, boy. You were really cool, man. You just lost everything. Just, ah, ah, your hair was standing up and everything. Was... That ain't funny, man. You can kill somebody like that. 
Suppose somebody wouldn't look at that statue and their heart just stopped pumping right away. Or the guy would have just fallen down some stairs and hurt himself. That ain't funny. Yeah, but God, you just see yourself. It was really funny, man. You just went, true. Didn't even touch one stuff, man. It's really cool, I'm telling you. <laughs> Listen, guys, now you gotta get somebody. Yeah, that's right. Get up in the hallway. Get the statues up. Come on, we're going to get somebody. I'm going to scare somebody now, boy. It ain't going to just be me, I tell you that. I get somebody killed around here. It'll really be funny because when they leave that statue on him, oh, that'll be it for them. And I'm waiting outside. Is the thing up? Yeah, okay. Here we go. You know, somebody's got to come sooner or later. I'm going to get somebody. And I hear off in the distance. Hey! Fat Albert. Hey! I said, hey, Fat Albert, come here, man. You should see Herman. He's getting a beating. I like to see Herman get a beating. Now, Fat Albert is not too fat, see? So I run up and I grab my arm. Come on, Albert, hurry up. And I start hitting him behind the back. Hurry up, man. Did you see it before it's over? And we go up the second flight. I start laughing because I know what it is. And turn around. Come on, Albert. We get up to the third flight. And the guy's there. Oh. I forgot I was behind him. <laughs> they, uh, they took me to the hospital and they put me in a bed beside a wino who was run over by two kids. And we both agreed that uh, frightened children are really uh, hard to get along with. I never had a guy dance on me so long. And he was so scared he couldn't even get a hey. He was like, and just dancing right on me forever. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Summer Pro
TomSumnerProgram.com The Tom Sumner Program.com You pilots, get off my lawn! We're trying to do a radio show down here! It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on! Go on, get out of here! <laughs>